All right, so good morning, everyone. We're in, um, today we're in Mark 14. Whew. Three chapters to go, people. Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. Now, what, there, there are so many different angles to this. Mark is, is fascinating how he writes. Uh, today is, uh, um, the text is a Mark and Sandwich. We've explained these before. This is where there's a story, and then they cut away to a, story, a different story, and, and, and then they come back to the first story again at the end, and, and the two stories actually help interpret one another, right? So you have the plotting uh, temple leaders. You've got this woman anointing Jesus, and then you've got Judas plotting against Jesus, and, and the stories help interpret one another. But the, the woman um, with the alabaster alabaster flask is actually the end of a Mark and Sandwich going all the way back to the lady with the two pennies. So you had the story of the, of the lady giving the two pennies, and then you have the um, Olivet Discourse, and then this, this lady comes, and she is spending an exuberant amount of money just like the woman with the two pennies. Okay, now, in, um, <laughs> this plot to kill Jesus at the beginning of 14 is the start of another Mark and Sandwich, I think he liked this device maybe more than he should have. I don't know. But this is the beginning of a Mark and Sandwich where at that ends at the end of chapter 15 where the plot is successful and they put him to death. So you have like all these different themes now that, that are being very tightly woven together. Um, and it's kind of hard in the structure of, of Mark itself to sort of see a, what, what is playing off of what. Um, so what I, I actually had to go back, I went back to chapter 11 and read all the way through to the end of the book just to get my head around where we're at. Um, because it's, it's amazing all the directions he's going here. He's echoing himself from earlier. He's echoing himself from later. He, he's echoing himself within the stories. And, and there's just a lot going on. There's a lot going on. So today, what we're going to focus on are the three responses to Jesus that we see in this text. So we're going to look at just verses 1 through 11 and see how three different people respond to Jesus and who he declares himself to be. So before we do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that there is always so much more to learn. Uh, there is always so much more to adore. There is always so much more to confess. There is um, always so much more comfort. There is always just more um, pouring out of your word. Uh, you are like the woman herself who pours the oil out on us and, and, and at, at great price to yourself. And, and I pray, God, that as we receive this gift this morning, that we would not receive it in vain, uh, that, that we would see the heart of God uh, opened wide to us in this text, the, the heart of the apostles opened wide to us, and that we would respond by widening our hearts also. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. This, this was one, this was, I, I sometimes have to just step aside and comment on it. This was one I needed bad, this one here. And, and I want you this whole time that I am discussing this, think of three giant paintings hanging here in front of you. Okay, this is, the story that we're going to tell today is in three parts. And in one painting over here, okay, is the beautiful court of the beautiful temple and all of these um, very rich-looking uh, long-robed, long-beard, wealthy-looking, well-fed men plotting to assassinate Jesus in this painting over here. 
And this painting down here on this end, I want you to imagine Judas crawling in there like a little bug, bowing down to them in the midst of all these rich people because he wants to be one of them, badly. And so you have conspirators over here and you've got Judas conspiring over here, selling Jesus out for his own gain. And in the middle is a woman spending $42,000 on one bottle of essential oils to dump it on Jesus' head. And I'm going to start right from the beginning. That is a silly thing to do. I'm just going to, this is, Jesus never says this was a really smart and wise thing for you to do. He never says that. What she is doing is, is on one level absurd. But we understand it, don't we? Because we understand who Jesus is. Of course, right? Who cares? Who cares how much it costs? Who cares how stupid I look? We want to be that woman, don't we? We want to come and just pour our hearts out and pour our wealth out and pour our time out on his head. Right? I want to be that woman in that painting so bad. But I am not, right? I'm one of these clowns over here or this clown over here crawling into these clowns over here, right? <laughs> I'm like, I want to run towards this painting and say, yes! And then I'm like, oh, there's me in this painting over here. I see what she does, and I say, yes, you know, that's a stupid thing to do, but I get the intent, and I want to have that same intention. So I go running towards it, and I end up over here, crawling on my belly like a snake. And I think that this is true of all of us. We want to be the woman in the painting. I, I, I know you all fairly well, right? This is the beauty of a small church. I see what lengths we go to to worship. I see what people sacrifice to come here and do this. We all desperately want to be this woman in this picture. So how? How do we keep ending up in these other ones? And that's what Jesus wants to come. He, want, he wants us to look into this story, and he wants to see the motivations of our hearts. He wants, us, he wants to comfort us. In, in, in the desire of our hearts to worship him, and, and he wants us to confess the things right, that draw us into these other paintings. The reference, now I'm going to move to the text. That's my introduction. The reference to the necessity of a strategy in chapter 14, verse 1, anticipates verses 10 through 11. Okay? They need some way to get at Jesus. Judas provides it to them. And in the middle is the, is the part of this story that brings those two things into sharp contrast. The pure devotion of the anonymous woman throws into bold relief the hostility, the treachery, the, the conniving of the other two parties. At the, at the time, men were concerned with securing Jesus' death, and Jesus' body at that same time was being prepared for burial through an act expressing faith and love. Right? Oh, that we would all be the people. <laughs> if you're driving to church, I hope I see all of us with this kind of excitement. I don't actually want to see you do this, but I want as if you want to do this. Driving down to Whole Foods and spending $42,000 on essential oils. Like, we'll just come there and we'll just dump it on the table at the front of the church. Because that's Jesus there, right? Right? I, this is the exuberance that this woman has. 42000 that's a lot of essential oils in our day. Tells you a little something about inflation. But that, that's, I want us to see in this story what this, where this woman's heart is at and, and see what prevents us. What is the roadblock? The, there is nothing in our way to be like this woman. 
It's, it's a matter of our affections, as was read for us from 1 Corinthians. So here we are. Mark is giving us three different responses to Jesus. And when we look into the mirror of Scripture in this passage, which character do we most identify with in our sin? The rejecter or the user? And how? How can we all become like this woman in the middle, the lavisher, the worshiper, or just with utter abandon, foolishness even, <laughs> in her worship? Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now what we have here are a couple of interesting details that Mark includes and, and, and that help us understand when it is. If you've noticed, throughout Mark, he doesn't really concern himself too much with telling us when things are. But here he gives us one of the only really clear details about when they're talking about. And it's two days before the Passover. Now, I think we're going to come to, I, I really tried to figure out why all of a sudden he gives us this detail. I think we're going to come to understand it in the following portions. Because he, the, he's going to line up the life of Jesus with the liturgical calendar of Passover. He's going to do that. So he's cluing us in now that he's going to do that. So this is a detail we're going to just leave and come back to later. The Passover designates the festival of redemption on the 14th, followed immediately by the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th through the 21st of that month. It would be April or May in our calendar. That wasn't their calendar. It doesn't matter what their calendar was. But in April or May, usually we have Easter. At the same time we have Easter is Passover. And they had these two festivals. And what happened over time is the two festivals became one giant festival, one large seven-day festival. Passover was a festival of the ancient freedom that Israel no longer enjoyed. That's important to remember. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt. Now they're slaves in Rome. So this is a holiday to them that is full of mixed emotions. Right? What, how great their God is, and when is he going to do it again? That is sort of the, the tension for them in Passover. Every year, still to this present day, I've actually been to a Passover feast with some Jewish friends. They, the Jews get together, they ha always have, and they tell this story of the Exodus through a meal. When God freed them from Pharaoh, when they came through the wilderness to the Promised Land, this is, they reenact it through this very elaborate feast. It's, it's quite, quite remarkable. Passover was the setting that Jesus chose for his final showdown with the temple and its hierarchy, the final conflict between the freedom movement he had been spearheading against new pharaohs, the forces of both pagan rule and temple misrule. He it emphatically chose the Passover to make his statement about who he is, who God is, and what God intends for this world. Right? The greatest event that ever happened before the cross was Israel's deliverance from, in, on the, in the Red Sea from Egypt going into the Promised Land. That was the greatest thing that has ever happened in human history until Jesus comes. And I think modern Christians sometimes don't quite understand that. Right? We, we like all of the Old Testament, generally speaking. We, we, we find, I mean, I think we tend to kind of gravitate towards David a little bit. In my opinion, that's what we think of a lot. But Moses was the greatest prophet. He was the greatest Jew that ever lived and pulling off the greatest event that had ever occurred. And now Jesus is here to do it again. To do it again. The conspiracy of the chief priests and scribes to arrest Jesus and have him quietly put to death expressed 
an intention that had been nurtured for a very long time. If you go all the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that's where it began. It was mentioned again in chapter 11, verse 18, and 12, 12. They have been wanting to put this man to death for a bit now, and he, he, he keeps slipping through their fingers. He's very dodgy. The recognition of the popular favor that Jesus enjoyed, the fear of an uprising, kept them from their task. The only reason they don't want to do it is because this, the city goes from 50,000 people during this festival to 250,000 people. And a large number of them are Galileans, and they had a reputation of being like, as I've said before, Super Bowl fans, right? Because God forbid the Super Bowl was ever here, because they just tear the city apart generally afterwards. Uh, or NHL fans, baseball fans. So the Galileans, they're in town, and it makes everybody nervous. Because if there's any sort of public disturbance, not only are the Galileans going to freak out, they're going to get the other 250,000 people to freak out, and then Rome comes in and, and occupies the city and puts on like you know military control and curfews and all that, and nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. They have tr- done that a few times now. The Romans are sick of it. The Jews are sick of it. And so the reason, even though they want to kill him so badly that they don't, is because they don't want everyone... To, to freak out and have a big, giant riot. They want to preserve, right? <laughs> They're in control. They don't want the Romans to come in and wrest control from them in the midst of all this chaos. According to Matthew chapter 26, verse 57, the conspirators gathered at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, and this is what we read about this meeting that they had in John chapter 11. This is, this is it here. This is what's going on as they're gathering together. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. He sounds like a really humble guy. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who had scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. How bizarre is that? The leader of the opposition says, you know what Jesus needs to do is die for the whole nation. Uh, Oh, okay. Well, then let's go worship him. No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. They they have this whole conspiracy. God gives them insight at this point into what it is that Jesus is there to do, and they can't even comprehend what it means outside of their own power, their own position. He doesn't need to die so that, because they're sinners. He doesn't need to die because they're all desperately sick and wicked. He needs to die so that the Romans don't take their position away. He's the sacrificial lamb that they're going to cough up to the Romans in order to, to retain their power. Why would God give them this prophecy? Unless he really, as in other times in the, in the Old Testament, wants to really seal the deal. He's giving them this spirit of confusion now. They are utterly confused about who Jesus is and what he's trying to accomplish. And even though Jesus is, or God the Father is trying to show them, they are rejecting it. Caiaphas, the high priest, is the chief instigator in the plot against Jesus. 
This is what he wants. Right? This is just like Psalm 2. The nations rage against, they're, they're angry at him. They're angry at, at, at the fact that he's leading everyone astray. They're angry that he might cause a big ruckus with the Romans. They want him taken care of. And it doesn't matter how much insight God gives them. They hate Jesus. But there are other people who don't know nearly as much, and their reaction couldn't be more different. Right? These guys have all the... In- Imagine, is there any more insight that this guy Caiaphas could have? Now we're going to look at a woman who doesn't really know anything. Right? She has no concept. Nobody's come to her in a prophecy and told her who Jesus is. But this is what we read of her reaction to Jesus. Chapter 14, verses 3 through 5. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And so they scolded her. The people who know that Jesus is there to die for everyone hate him and want him gone. This woman doesn't really understand what's going on and she spends $42,000. That's the... That's how much money 300 denarii is. It's the common annual wage of, an, of a worker. Well, the co- I looked it up. The common annual wage in King County, believe it or not, for, for a working class guy is $42,000. So imagine, t- <laughs> we're working class people. Imagine taking your entire annual salary and spending on oil that you dump on this guy's head. Wouldn't, right? If you saw somebody come in here and do something like that, we would yell at them, wouldn't we? Right? Don't you understand how much, how many stocks you could have bought with that? Are you crazy? Don't you have any thought for your retirement? Don't you have a family? I saw the car you drove up in. It's a jalopy. Right? I mean, this woman isn't wealthy. And, and she's got, she's got money to spend like this? I, I would, I, I sympathize with the disciples quite a bit here. I really do. I mean, if somebody came and did something like this, I would like, okay, well, we're going to, Right? I become Job's counselor very quickly. Well, we're going to sit down and have some counseling about responsibility. Okay, we're going to talk about being a good steward. And it's, right, I would be right there with them. And you're like, this guy needs to stop talking. Right? Let the woman worship. We very, very quickly, if we do not slow down, if we do not think about what we are doing, if we do not think about what we are saying, if we don't take time in prayer, we become Job's counselors like that. And we start telling people terrible advice. We start scolding them for things we ought not scold them. We start getting into things that are not, has nothing to do with what we're talking about at the moment. Now, there are some very weird questions about this text. There are a number of anointing stories throughout the Gospels. And the debate is, are they all the same story? Or did this kind of thing happen to Jesus quite often when he's out eating dinner? Right? He's just trying to eat some ta- fish tacos, and somebody comes up and starts dumping essential oils on his head. It seems like, actually, I, I'm with them. I, it seems like that actually happened to him quite a bit. Because if you take all the anointing stories and try to put them together into one, it actually creates as many problems as it solves. The famous one in Luke, he's, he's clearly at somebody else's house. That, wo- that woman you know, who cries on his feet and washes it and with her hair, that beautiful story, that's, I, it's not this story. John also, at the end of, at the end of um, 
his gospel, has a story where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus' sister also anoint him with oil. And in that story, they say very clearly who it is. I don't actually think this is that story either, though, because the, the point of the stories are very different. Now, it could be the same story that they just draw out different conclusions. But I looked at all of them, and I really do think this is something. <laughs> this was a response that Jesus got often. Bring out your expensive oils and dump them on this man because he needs to be anointed. He needs to be perfumed. He is glorious. He is beautiful. I don't even understand why, but I love him. And so let's just throw our wealth at him in praise and worship. I, I think he got that experience. He experienced that kind of reaction quite often. But there are some mysteries that remain, but I don't, I don't think they're essentially important. Right? In the context of Mark, that's what we're going to be looking at here today. The costly perfume is identified as nard, which I think is one of the funniest words I've ever heard. It's an aromatic oil extracted from the root, the root native to India. So this is not something that you could just go out and dig up in the ground uh, right there in Israel. To retain the fragrance, to, to keep it safe so that it doesn't, right, right, so that it doesn't leak out and get, get away, they actually um, put it in this small alabaster flask. And they kept it in there. And the only way to get it out is to break the bottle. That way it keeps all this stuff in it. Now, what's fascinating is that this was something that would come into the possession of families and they would hand it down from mothers to daughters. And they wouldn't even, right? And my wife has things like this. We have these heirlooms that we have that nobody uses, but they're very valuable and they're very personal. And, and it's like this silver comb that no one combs their hair with. But I also can't melt it down, you know, to get money out of it. Uh, <laughs> So it just lives there on, on the, uh, the dresser. And these are one of the many things we've had to compromise, right? My house is actually all over. There are treasures that I've just inherited from people I have never met. And apparently they're very valuable. And, and people own things like this. I'm sure in most of our homes, uh, if we went into them, we have these things that have been given to us. And we don't use them because that's not the point of them. So either, right, either this woman went out and bought this or this is something that they have had in the family for a while. Now, either way, I, you, you could go, I mean, those are two very different ways to get it, but either way, you can see that, that something, something, something very wonderful is going on here. Right? <laughs> I just imagine, like, Jesus in our day, my wife goes and gets that comb, melts it down, makes a ring, gives it to him. They're like, yeah, see, that's kind of what this is like. It's like, forget about it. Like, it's the most valuable thing we have, let's just give it to him. Early in the first century, historian Pliny the Elder remarked that the best ointments were preserved in alabaster, the absolute best ones, the absolute most expensive ones. So the fact that they included the alabaster in the, in the verses in the Bible tells us how valuable this thing really was. Now, anointing was a very common custom at feasts, and this is why I think this happened to Jesus. Right? And, and everybody knows that they're celebrating the Exodus story. Religious fervor is at a pretty good height. This is generally, at, at dinners, apparently they would go around anointing one another. Some guy would get in his mind, he'd go buy some olive oil, and he'd go around anointing everybody, thinking, you know, may the Lord come, may the Lord come, may the Lord come. And this is something that would happen at these feasts that they had, which is why I think it happened to Jesus, because they understood on some level that he was glorious and good. It is clear that the woman's action expressed thanksgiving and a pure devotion to Jesus. It doesn't seem like she went around doing this to anybody else. She came and she, she took this alabaster flask. 
And imagine like a pirate, she breaks the bottle on the thing and then starts pouring it on it. Right? She did this to him. Those who were indignant at this apparent display of extravagance were the disciples themselves. The, the people who know who he is. And in one sense here, okay, we'll get into what they say, but what they're thinking is, why are you doing that to him? And that strikes me pretty hard. Because for them, they should be like, well, oh, okay, that seems natural. Seems like a natural response. I mean, we did actually see him feed 5,000 people with one, you know, with some crackers and, a, and one fish. We actually saw him walking on water. I'd put, yeah, putting oil on him is a good idea. Amen. Have at it. Like, their excuse is super lame, but, but at the heart of it is this. Why do you do that to him as if he's undeserving, as if he's not worthy? Now, it was very common, it's recorded in John thirteen twenty nine that at this time people, would, people who couldn't be in Jerusalem would bring their tithes from the year with them. And part of what they would spend on all of their activities was the, the money they had saved up that we would normally put in the box here. They didn't give it to the synagogues generally. They took it with them and spent it when they were in Jerusalem. And so one of the things that remark and John is everybody has extra money and their, 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 their pockets are full. And so they take money and give it to poor people. So there is a tradition at Passover meals to be very lavish with the poor. That was something that was very common. And that's what they're referencing to. We could have, right, this is Passover. We could have sold that and we could have given the money to the poor people. The disciples are obviously very confused about Jesus' attitude towards money and towards wealth. I think that's, it's obvious at this point. Right? What have they seen? They seen they need a tax to pay the tax collector. He says, go get it out of the mouth of that fish. It's like, who pulls money out of fish? Right? The man clearly can get money whenever he wants it, but he doesn't. We're all poor. Right? They're all poor following him. Another time he says, the rich man, rich young ruler, right? It's very hard for rich people to get into heaven, which totally flummoxed them because they're the only people that he they thought had ever gotten into heaven were rich people. So it might be that they're simply trying to impress Jesus because Jesus hasn't responded yet. And here's this woman with this expensive thing. They all know what it is when they see it. She starts pouring it on their head and who knows if they even really believe what they're saying. They might just say, oh, oh, Jesus. Yeah, J Jesus is watching. How dare you, woman? Spend that alabaster flask that way. What's wrong with you? Right, Jesus? Right? Yeah, yeah. Poor people. Right, right. And it just seems so manipulative what they're doing. Like they're trying, they're trying to look good in front of the boss. Have you ever done that? I remember, I mean, this is a joke we used to do at, at King County. I'd see the boss coming and I'd start getting after my coworker for not doing what they were supposed to. Oh, you better work harder. Hey, boss. Hey. And they were like, you're not really typing, are you? No, not at all. No, we were just talking. Sorry. But it just seems to me like this kind of moment where you're going to throw your neighbor under the bus in order to look good in front of the boss. Ugh, it's just creepy. Now, what we have to understand is that Jesus' attitude towards both the widow who puts in the two pennies and this woman in this story is a fundamentally the same. He recognizes what's really going on instantaneously. He hasn't answered yet, 
But when we're going in, right, they're confused about his, how he acts towards money. And what we're going to see is that he, right, he's hard to understand because he's wise and we're not. He's consistent and we're not. Right? They're not consistent by any stretch of the imagination. His view of the woman with the pennies and the woman with the alabaster flask is the same. Unbelief despises this, the widow's might as too small and too worthless. Right? Whoever, <laughs> I, I understand the budget of the church. Right? And so w- w- that, that is always interesting to me when I see kids come in and they've got a hand, and they got 65 cents and they're going to put it in the box. Now, what kind of person would I be if I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I gotta what, save all that up and roll it? I'm gonna walk into I'm gonna walk into the Wells Fargo with a pocket full of change, right? If I reacted that way, what would everyone automatically be like? Oh, dude, right? So the woman, the the woman with the two pennies, the response to her is, "Honey, save the money. It doesn't. It's not gonna help us, right? That that amount of money is not gonna do anything for us. It might do something for you." Well, on the flip side, what, what they see in this woman here in Bethany with the alabaster flask is wasteful, exhibitionist, and unrealistic. Well, how dare you give us that small amount that we can't do much with that? How dare you give us so much? Waste it right now. Are you out of your mind? And what you see with these guys is nothing is right. Nothing pleases them. Nothing is correct. They don't understand the value of the person they're following. They have yet to understand the value of the things that they and others hold in their hands. Just like what the prayer was today from John. They are absolutely and utterly confused about the value of the things in this world and the value of the person that's with them. Now, their criticism must must have stung like a whiplash to this lady. Mark uses the verb inebrimanto. Sounds like Spanish, I'm sorry, but it's Greek. And this means they reproached her. It, it, philologically, what this actually means in, in, in Greek is they snorted at her, right? Like they don't... <laughs> like that. Like, have you ever had a parent who just like... My mom used to do this. I'd put, put in my place... She'd just blow no, air out of her nose really fast, and you hear it, and you're like, oh, no. And, and it's like that, like a bull who's about to charge. It is actually in the dictionary how they kind of describe my lies. That's funny, isn't it? I'm with you, buddy. I'm sorry. Get a drink of water. All right. So that's essentially, right? You've seen a bull when they like scratch on the ground and then they snort. That's the idea in the mind, what they're doing to this lady. And, and remember, this is a woman in the midst of a bunch of men. Do you think she already feels uncomfortable? Do you think she already feels a little kind of exposed? And now here's a bunch of dudes angry at her for what she's done. And what she doesn't yet know is what is Jesus going to say? His followers are not happy about it. And she's standing there with the empty alabaster flask, and how do you think she's feeling? Like an idiot, probably. But I don't think so. That's how I would feel. I don't think she heard them at all. I don't think she saw them at all. I don't think she gives them a heed. I don't think she sees anything in the room but him. She doesn't care what they say. If she cared what they thought, she wouldn't have walked in there. Because women don't come into the midst of men while they're sitting there eating dinner and do things like this. This is why I want to be this woman. Because as soon as I start thinking about it, I'm like, man, she must have been really embarrassed. Because it's hard for me to comprehend a situation and where you don't care what anyone thinks. You don't care the judgment that anyone makes. All you care about is him. Don't we? We want to be that lady, don't we? 
Shameless. Absolutely shameless. I don't care if you snort at me. I don't care if you laugh at me. I don't even hear it. All I hear and all I see and all I know is this beautiful Savior in front of me. This man that I could barely comprehend that I just want to pour my heirlooms and my wealth out on. But what does Jesus say? Mark 14, verses 6 through 9. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can, uh, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. What she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And his word stands, because here we are, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, talking about this woman, and, and, and I'll be frank, I want to be her bad. What she did was so pure and so good, regardless of its foolishness, that he said they will talk about this wherever they say my name, wherever they proclaim who I am, they will talk about this woman. And we don't know her name. We don't know where she got the flask. We don't know if she was married or had kids. We don't know if she was old or young. We know nothing. But I want to be her. What the disciples said about the value of the ointment and the need of the poor was perfectly true. But Jesus looks for uncalculating devotion to himself rather than fine wisdom and balanced judgment in giving. Right? This lady was not sitting down looking at how much money she had in the bank, how much right, her, all of her expenses were, and thought, you know what I need to do with this alabaster flask and sell it. Maybe, maybe I'll show it to him. Right? She's not calculating in any way. She doesn't sit down and think, how much can I give? She gives the most valuable thing she has. And she either went and traded all of her money for it, or it was something that her family, her grandma and mom and grandma, grandma's grandma had handed down to them. She is not calculating in any way. <clears throat> Ultimately, Jesus looks not at the human wisdom of our acts, right? He never tells this woman this was a wise and prudent thing for you to do. He never validates her in that way. He doesn't turn and say, yes, everyone, go and get a year's worth of wages and come and throw it at me. He doesn't say anything like that. Because he's not getting into all that. What he wants to do is he wants this woman to understand, I love you this much too. I understand what you are here doing. I understand why you did it. I understand what you've done. And everyone, everyone who hears of me will hear of you. And hopefully they will come to understand this moment too. Now he says this. He says, he, he puts the most startling interpretation on what she's done. She has, he says, anointed his body for burial. She has done it ahead of time, presumably because Jesus himself knows that he will be killed in such a way that there will be no time. Once he's turned over, nobody has an opportunity to anoint him for anything. Once his dead body is dragged down off the cross, there's no time to pour ointments on him. 
He knows that there's not going to be time for this later. It's, it's short. It's brief. I'm here. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be here forever. And what she understands, she has a sense of urgency and immediacy. She knows that this is the moment. She's not waiting till later, just like that blind man. Remember the blind man didn't let him walk by. As long as it is today. Today is the day of salvation, just like what was read from us from Corinthians. This is the moment. You want to lavish him with your praise and your worship? This is the moment. Now, not later. She has intuitively gone right to the heart of the issue. Right in the center of this painting, we have all... She understands on some level, intuitively, she has gone right to the heart of the issue because what's going on all around Jesus? Plots and treachery to put him to death. She somehow, some way, understands what he is doing, what is going on. She understands the grand picture, and her response is to worship him and to take her moment with him when it's presented and to not wait, to not put it off. Jesus recognized in the generosity of her gift a beautiful expression of love which possessed a deeper significance than she could have possibly understood. Now, if we turn to Psalm 41, it actually, right, there's a, there's a verse in there that is often quoted in context of this story, but I want to read the whole psalm. As I've said, we have a better understanding of the verse that's quoted if we understand the whole thing. Psalm 41, I'm going to read it now, and then, we'll, and then I'll explain it. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give up, uh, and you do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad, all who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delighted me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Every word of this now has a new meaning. Because he is not going to remain where they put him. He is going to come back. And he just got done through all of chapter 13, telling us exactly how he's going to repay them. And his friend does raise his heel. Now you recall, going all the way back to Genesis 3, in the, or, yeah, Genesis 3, the antithesis, there will come a son who crushes the head of the Satan. And what is the Satan going to do? He's going to bruise his heel. And you got this reference to a heel here being raised against him. Though betrayed by a close friend and seen by the temple authorities as the means to secure position and power, like the psalmist, Jesus is the poor but righteous sufferer who is confident that God will raise him up and vindicate him. 
They said, hey, you know, we could have sold that and given, to, given it to the poor. And this is what she understands that they don't understand. She is giving it to the poor. Who is poorer than him? His disciples are sitting. They know. They follow him around. They know who he is. They see how he lives. Is he a rich man? No. But more than that, he is the God who became poor, as Paul says, to make others rich. Yeah, give it to the poor. The poorest person who ever lived is sitting right there in their midst. Think of everything he had that he gave up. Think of everything he could have done that he didn't. Think of all that was due to him that was withheld from him. She is, in fact, giving it to the poorest person in the room, the poorest person who's ever walked the sad earth. She gets it. They don't. All around him, they're plotting his death. All around him. And, and she sees, right to the heart of it, she sees somehow, she, and her response is what? To pour out her wealth. To lavish him. To show him praise. To focus on him, regardless of the fact that there are men there telling her she ought not to do such a thing. And what do we say? It, says, it said in Psalm 41, blessed is the one who gives to the poor. Is that woman blessed? Yes. Right? Those disciples all want to be blessed because they're thinking of the poor because they don't get it. Now, Judas sees all of this. And he thinks, okay, well, <laughs> my time with this camp is done. I'm done, so I'm out of here. Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now the chief priests and scribes were seeking to arrest Jesus by a stratagem, while Judas was seeking an opportunity to hand him over. The primary concern of the Sanhedrin was the avoidance of a riot. And here is a man who can lead them directly to where Jesus has been hiding, where they haven't been able to find, and can say, yes, that's him. There's no, there'll be no confusion There'll be no nabbing the wrong guy, and there will be no where he can hide when one of his own circle are going to be now helping them find him. Now, the fact that Jesus' betrayer should be one of his own disciples is very perplexing. This is a man who's gone out in Jesus' name. This is a man who's cast out demons. This is a man who's preached the gospel. This is a man who's seen all the miracles. This is a man who's tasted of the heavenly kingdom there at Jesus' side, right? He's eaten bread with him. Think of the intimacy and, and figuring out his earth, like his motivation from an earthly point of view is actually very difficult. Right? Jesus comes into Jerusalem. It's time to, right? The first two things you do when you take power, right? Is take control of the military and take control of the treasury. If you ever commit a coup, if you're ever going to overthrow a country, I'm telling you right now, take the army base and the treasury. The country's yours. Here's Judas who carries the money bag thinking, I'm following this guy all the way to the top because imagine what that treasury is going to be like that I'm stealing from because that's what John tells us. Mark doesn't tell us it, but Judas is not a good guy. So, hey, where's my payday, Jesus? What's up with that? I thought we were going to go in here and take control of everything and I was going to be your chief financial officer and you short shorted me. You shortchanged me. It's also possible that hearing... He actually understands of everybody what Jesus is actually going to do. 
And I've never heard this theory before, but I like this. He actually kind of understands. And so he says, okay, well, if Jesus is going to die, let's let him die and I'll make a buck. Right? He keeps talking about dying. I will help him accomplish his goal because I'm a good friend. And I'll make some money on the side while I'm doing it. There is something so like me in that story. I don't, it just, but I see myself so much in that. Well, that's what you want. I'll help you out and I'll help myself out. Seems good. I've said it for years. I'm always trying to come up with the scheme that's going to get me money. And this just seems like. What is, what, what, why is he doing this? We don't know. All we know, all we do know is that he's giving them exactly what they want, the opportunity to nab him silently. Now, there you are. The conspirators, the backstabber, and the worshiper. Are you using Jesus... Is he a means to an end for you? Right? He's the way to heaven, and heaven sounds pretty nice. And, and, and we've, I've asked this question before. This is John Piper, who's a genius. If you could have all the promises of God and everything that's offered to us in heaven and have it without him, would you still want it? And I'll tell you right now, that is, I don't like that question. I wish he had never written it, and yet I'm so glad he did. Because it goes right to the heart of the matter. It, this this newsletter that I sent out, the, the open letter, I was thinking of this when I wrote that. Because how many of us are like, oh, you know what's safe is the ark where Jesus is the captain of the boat. So let's go hide on the ark because, right, if you're a stowaway, this is, this is something that I also read in the Pilgrim's Progress. The guy who sneaks over the wall doesn't come through the gate. There are times where I am here because this is where it's safe, right? This is, <laughs> this is where good people are. This is where I, you know, I have position and respect. And, and I'm Judas over here who's just using Jesus to get stuff for myself. Now, there are other times where I'm these conspirators over here who just want him to stop. And so what I do is I'm like, well, how can we silence him? I don't want to have to hear about him. I don't want to have to listen to silence. Because when I listen to silence, all those terrible things that I do come creeping up and bug me. So I'm going to turn the music on. I'm going to turn the TV on. I'm going to, I'm going to play video games. I'm going to read a book. And I'm going to do anything. I'm going to conspire in every possible way to be too busy and too confused <laughs> by the word of God and too distracted to listen to Jesus Christ. Whatever I got to do, whatever plot we got to do to not cause too much of a scene, right? I don't want to sin so bad that I make a riot. I just want to quietly get him to stop. So there I am in this painting over here. Now, all of this has happened in my life, right? All of this has happened in all of our lives. We have all plotted against him. We have all used him. We have all abused him. We have all turned our back on him. We have all mocked the things of God that ought not to be mocked. We are the worldly wise often. And that's our struggle, isn't it? Because we hate all of that, don't we? We hate it. Because what we want to do is be the woman in the center painting. What prevents us from being that person? Nothing. Nothing. He has removed every obstacle. 
Are you a conspirator? He forgives you. Are you a liar? He forgives you. Are you using and abusing him? He forgives you. He will free you from all of that. If you come to him and if you pour out, like the widow with the two pennies, this woman, if you pour heart, mind, strength out on him, if you pour yourself out on him as he has poured himself out on you, you will find that there is no obstacle. There's nothing standing between you and him, but you're coming to him. This is what the disciples were saying. What did he withhold, Jesus Christ? What did he hold back from you? The disciples said, what have we held back? There is no roadblock. We are here for reconciliation. That's, that's why we're here. That's what he's provided for us. Let's do it today, not wait. His heart is wide open. Their heart is wide open. Is yours. I find too often mine isn't. And the heart is a muscle. The more it does, the more it can do. This is why he says, widen your heart. There is no obstacle. It's your affections. You have to see yourself in these side paintings. And you have to say, yes, this is what distracts me from being the person in the middle. And I want to be the person in the middle. And what you will find is as you're crying it out, that's how he does it. By your doing it is how he does it. That's how he makes you that person. There is nothing standing between you and him. Nothing. He has removed every obstacle. He has removed everything that confuses you, everything that holds you back, everything that distracts you, all of it. He's taking care of it. It's there he is. Do you care who's watching? Do you care how much it costs? Say it. Tell him. He'll take care of that too. And then come and pour yourself out in worship and praise and love and lavish him with the love that he has shown you. That's what he wants for for all of us. He wants us all to be this woman who's remembered wherever his name is remembered. And that's what is offered to all of us. Now, let's take hold of it with both hands. Let's, let's let go of all of the distractions and all of the busyness and all of the plots and all the calculating, and let's be open and frank before him and, and, and pour ourselves out on the Lord Jesus Christ. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for the testimony of, of this lady with the alabaster flask. We thank you um, for her love her lavish love for Jesus. We thank you for recording the story. We thank you for Mark and his amazing ability to construct it in such a way as to expose our sin and comfort us. I pray, God, that as all of us here, that you would free us from the roadblocks and from what holds us back, the false affections that lead us astray, that we would worship you like this woman, that we would be devoted to you like this woman, that we would Love the Lord Jesus Christ this much, and amen.